that those eight individuals that we will be discussing today uh, have tremendously, tremendously had a huge effect on what an average Shi'i believes in today on our books, on our tafsir, on our aqaid, on our um, uh, books of fiqh and on usul. Uh, let me, allow me to begin with the first personality uh, and who I may, I believe could be uh, one of the most important ones, if not the most important personality in this list. And that is Thiqatul Islam. Sheikh Muhammad bin Ya'qub al-Kulayni radhwanullahi ta'ala alayhi the author of the book Al-Kafi al-Sharif Sheikh al-Kulayni brothers and sisters is one of the most interesting personalities uh, I believe and, and Sheikh could correct me here if, uh, if things are different in Najaf as he has studied in Najaf and I have studied in Qom but for the most part when we begin our journey as uh, students in the seminary and in the Hawza, we are given books and we are given uh, many books actually to study uh, personally or with teachers. Some of them uh, are in private classes, some of them are in public classes. However, little do we know about the history of those individuals unless we choose to make that a personal uh, 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 adventure for ourselves where we will examine the history and the background of those scholars, where they came from, when did they live, um, and what is the legacy that they have left behind. And I believe that that is extremely important when examining those books. You can't just examine a book without knowing was this author alive 50 years ago or was he alive for example, a thousand years ago, uh, did he uh, live during a freedom given to the Shia community? Or was he living in a period where the Shia community was prosecuted and killed? And that is my advice for all the brothers and sisters who uh, engage with any sort of book, to please have a background on the author. Like Samahat al-Sheikh just said, some scholars are uh, very famous when it comes to uh, a specific field such as Islamic law or Islamic legal theory, usul al-fiqh. Some of them are experts in the field of tafsir. Some of them are experts in the field in, in the field of philosophy or or logic, and that is very important for us to know. And also, when they lived, how were they influenced? What was the political situation like? So. Uh, Sheikh Al-Kulayni was born in Ray, which is a city in Iran, the current Tehran, actually. And he uh, was born in the same year as the 12th Imam. And that's what makes him very important. The year 255 after the Hijrah, Sheikh Al-Kulayni and the 12th Imam, Ajalallahu uh, Ta'ala Farajahu Sharif, were born. Now, Al-Imam was born in Surah Manra'a or Samarra and Sheikh was born in, uh, in Iran. However, the Sheikh migrated to Baghdad and I, I'm, I'm, I'm making his biography extremely brief. He migrated to Baghdad during the Ghaybat al-Sughra. Now, whether we do have two Ghaybas or we have one Ghaybah and it's, it's given different titles, 
That is something we should probably explain later. We, we don't have traditions that tell us we have two ghaybas, but we have two different approaches of communication with our Imam. One was through deputies that he had chosen, and that is why our scholars called this al-ghayba sughra. And after that, we have general deputies, the ulama, the maraja, and the fuqaha today. Um, and that is considered al-ghayb al-kubra. However, what I want to say is the imam, the sheikh was during the minor occultation where he had the ability to communicate with the deputies of the imam. He wrote this book called Al-Kafi. Uh, and it's according to many of our scholars, the most authentic book of hadith for the Shia community. It is the backbone and the pillar of all the other books of hadith and riwayat. However, that does not mean we believe that every single tradition in that book is authentic, but it is the most authentic of sources of hadith and it should be studied. Uh, and we will speak of individuals who created methodologies for studying those books of hadith. His influence is great uh, uh, within the madhab of Ahlul Bayt. Sheikh Al-Tabarsi is a Mashhadi scholar. He was born in, in Mashhad in the year, and he died in the year 548 after the Hijrah. So we're talking about a scholar who lived about a thousand years ago. And Sheikh Al-Kulaini was given the title of Fiqhatul Islam. And Sheikh Al-Tabarsi is, is known in scholarly circles as Amin, you know, the trustee of Islam. And this shows you, brothers and sisters, how how important the quality of being trustworthy is in the in the disseminate in the dissemination of knowledge. That scholars are seen as people who are reliable, who are trustworthy, who are impartial. So that's you know in the in the same way that the Prophet was known in his community before he had to establish that credibility for his words to have an impact on people's hearts. You know, so you see that some of the titles that are conferred upon uh, the ulama are, are qualities that really make up makarim al-akhlaq. Now, Sheikh al-Tabarsi, of course, we're speaking about scholars who specialize in different areas. Although Sheikh al-Tabarsi was, was a scholar of hadith, although he's, he was a jurist in his own right, he was a master of, uh, of, uh, of the Arabic language, his specialty and his his most important contribution was in the world of tafsir. He wrote a famous tafsir, it's about 10 volumes, known as Majma'ul Bayan. Now, when you look at the history of, of tafsir, of course, if you set aside a tafsir al the hadith based tafsir, like tafsir al Qummi, tafsir al Ayashi, the most comprehensive tafsir that was written was by Sheikh Abusi, which Sayyid will speak about. After Sheikh Abusi, you see that the next most important book is the tafsir of Sheikh Abbasi. In fact, Sheikh Abbasi himself says that he relies he relied heavily on the the commentary, the comprehensive commentary of Sheikh Abusi. Now, Sheikh Abbasi comes from a scholarly family. In fact. His son and his grandson were well-known scholars. Many of you may be familiar with uh, Kitab Makarim al-Akhlaq. 
Kitab Makarim al-Akhlaq is a book on Islamic ethics, and it literally means, you know, noble character. And I think it's maybe been translated into English, if I'm not mistaken. When people pick up this book, they see that the author is Sheikh al-Tabarsi, and they assume that this is the same author as the author of Majma al-Bayan, but this is the son of Sheikh al-Tabarsi. Another important book is, you know, Mishkatul Anwar fi Ghural al-Akhbar. This is a book of hadith. It's a hadith collection. This was written by the grandson of Sheikh al-Tabarsi. So this is a very scholarly family known for their contributions. One final thing that I'd like to mention about Majma' al-Bayan. You know, Majma' al-Bayan for hundreds of years, it was the most important tafsir up until Al-Alam al-Tabatubai wrote, uh, tafsir al-Mizan. And even Alam al-Tabatubai relies heavily on, uh, on Majma' al-Bayan when he writes Tafsir al-Mizan. Now, when you introduction of Majma' al-Bayan, Sheikh al-Tabarsi mentions the reason why he wrote this Tafsir. And it's an interesting story. You know, Sheikh al-Tabarsi was living, it seems like he was li living in a village, and, and it, he mentions that Something happened to him. Presumably, he had a heart attack and he collapsed. <laughs> now, of course, at that time, you're talking about a thousand years ago. The people in his home, the people in his household thought that he had died. You know, there was no EKG machine. There was no hospitals. They saw that he appeared to be dead. He had no heartbeat. So they made the arrangements to bury him. They did ghusl. They prepared the funeral. The same day, within a few hours... They saw that he had collapsed. It seemed that he was dead. They buried him. Now, in that village, there was a, a grave digger who was, known, who was a thief. He was known for stealing shrouds. Now, at that time, you had people like that who were so poor that they used to wait for fresh bodies to be buried in the cemetery, and they would go dig them up. And this guy probably you know, saw that Sheikh Al-Tabarsi was buried and the sheikh probably had a good kafan, you know, a very valuable kafan. So, when sheikh, when they bury Sheikh Al-Tabarsi, he wakes up. Can you imagine? He wakes up in his grave. If this happened to you and I, we would actually die. So Sheikh Al-Tabarsi, he maintains his composure. And he finds himself in a kafan. There's barely enough oxygen in the, uh, in the grave. There's some pockets of, of, uh, of air for him. At that moment, he realizes that he was mistakenly buried. So what does he do? He makes a nadr. He makes a vow to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, Oh Allah, if you rescue me from this grave, I will write a tafsir of the entire Quran. As he made this nadr, the grave digger, he started digging and digging and digging until the light penetrated and Sheikh Al-Tabarsi extends his hand to grab the hand of the grave digger. The guy probably had a heart attack. I don't know. But the point is that Sheikh Al-Tabarsi tells him that I'm alive and I won't expose you. And of course, you know, he was an, he was an, he was an elderly man at the time. He tells this guy, this grave digger, that if you help me out and you take me and you carry me to my home, I won't tell anyone what you did and I'll compensate you for it. And then Sheikh al is carried to his home 
and he begins writing tafsir majma'ul bayan and inshallah we pray to allah that one day this uh, this very valuable commentary of the quran is translated into english sheikh tusi came after sheikh al kulaini uh, where he was um, he was born in the year 385 after the hijra um, and he uh, was also born in Tus, Khurasan, and he made his way towards Ray, and from Ray he made his way towards uh, the city of Baghdad. Now, in his biography, you will realize that some have stated when he got to Baghdad, because he was such an influential scholar, because uh, and, and we will talk about his method of of actually teaching, which was an extremely unique method, probably uh, a method that has not uh, been seen after him until today. And I'll tell you how. But but there is an area that I, I'd like to shed some light on, and that's when they say that the Khalifa, the Abbasi Khalifa, because obviously this was the, during the Abbasi period, the Khalifa, the Abbasi Khalifa gave him the title of the grand sheikh of of the uh, of the of the Abbasi realm, and he made him Sheikh al Islam, and he gave him the what they called kursi, the chair. What the chair meant was that he became the dean of the University of Baghdad, which was the most important university and Hausa at the time, and that is wrong. Uh, the sheikh actually lived during. A government within the Abbasi government that actually took over the city of Baghdad and other regions, um, and they were the Buwaydis. The Buwaydis were actually Shia, and they had a peaceful treaty with the Abbasis. And in fact, the very first of Ashura processions in the city of Baghdad, while there were people out in the streets marching you know this Arba'in march and uh, making mokibs and having aza in the streets was during this period and it began then and they were given the freedom uh, to do so at that period so how is it that sheikh atusi rahmatullahi alayh was able to make the shi'i seminary or the shi'i hawza the headquarters for all the hawzat, all the seminaries, all the universities, all the learning institutions for all the Muslims, where you saw that Hanafi, Hanbali, Shafi'i, and Maliki scholars had actually migrated to Baghdad, and they would attend the lessons of Sheikh Tusi, and they would have lessons of their own, which tells you so much about this great scholar. Uh, you know, while the Shia community didn't have the power and the authority. Uh, obviously, they were not given the ability to uh, teach and propagate freely. And uh, the chair, the so-called chair, was always given to other madahib. However, when the grand alim, as Sheikh Tusi, a scholar of the Shi'i community, a person who adheres to the teachings of the Ahlul Bayt and Al Muhammad, he then allows every alim every mufti of that madhab to teach freely however what what was it that drew those ulama scholars and fuqaha from other madhab to actually attend the courses of a sheikh al-tusi which again 
to me, makes him one of the most influential characters within the Shi'i school of thought. One is because he taught us how to run a university, how to run a hausa, how to run a learning institution. He, in every one of his lessons and many of his books, when he discusses an ayah, when he discusses a hook, an Islamic uh, a law or a legal theory, or when he discusses almost every aspect, hadith, and he brings the opinion of other scholars, and then he gives his opinion or the opinion of the Shi'i scholars, and then he tells his audience or his students, why is it that he has chosen this opinion amongst a bundle of other opinions? And this made all these scholars and ulama infatuated with the works of Sheikh Tusi. Why? Because sometimes a Hanafi scholar was not able to refute the theory of a Shafi'i scholar. But when he attended the class of Sheikh Tusi, Sheikh Tusi did. And that even gave strength to the thought process of other madahib. Now, Sheikh Tusi has the most influential books within the Shi'i madhab as well. Al-Istibsar, Al-Tahdeeb, and he also has books that examine the books of hadith. So he did not only have books of hadith, but he has Tabaqat al-Shaykh al-Tusi and Rajal al-Shaykh al-Tusi. And what those are is to help us navigate through a hadith. So which hadith is reliable, which personality is reliable, which isn't. How was it that we choose those different personalities? And how is it that we mark one hadith as valid and one as invalid? Those, this is the legacy that Sheikh Atosi has left behind amongst many other books, amongst a list of many other books uh, within the Shi'i Madhab and the followers of Ahlul Bayt. What I want to say is also another misunderstanding or something people don't know about what happened to Sheikh Atosi. Sheikh Atosi saw one of the most difficult times for the Shi'i community of Iraq. And that is the, the invasion of the Turks uh, for Baghdad. As you know, I said that there was a Shi'i government at the time, the Buwaydis. And an icon that people are respecting today and they're watching him on Netflix. And I see some people even putting you know, his stories on, on their social media, Ordughrul, um, who is seen as a hero. Well, he was no hero. Believe me, brothers. The problem is we don't read history and we don't know what this man did. He entered Baghdad and the first thing that he did was he burned down the library of a Sheikh Atosi and he destroyed his chair and he drove him out of the city of Baghdad. When Sheikh Atosi saw that there is no way for him to remain in Baghdad, what did he do? And this is one of the most important decisions in the life of Sheikh Atusi that has affected millions upon millions of people. Sheikh Atusi decided to transfer the Hawza al-Almiyah from the holy city of Baghdad, where was the shrine of al-Imam Musa ibn Ja'far, al-Imam al-Jawad, to the holy city of Najaf. So he took the Hawza, his students, and they, will, they all migrated to the holy city of Najaf. And that was the beginning of the Hawza in the holy city of Najaf. And until today, you find that this Hawza is thriving because of that decision that Sheikh Atosi made. Now, one interesting story, just like the Sheikh, 
mentioned a beautiful story. I'd like to mention a beautiful story and then we'll pass on to the next personality. When they asked Sheikh Atusi, where do you want to live when you go to Najaf? His answer was, buy me a house right next to the house of Sayyid Bahr al-Uloom. So they told him, Sheikhna, do you know where Sayyid Bahr al-Uloom lives? His street, his neighborhood? How big is the house? How small is the house? You might not like it. Why don't you go there? You know, you stay at someone's house for a while and then we'll buy your house. He said, I don't care about the street. I don't care about where it is. I don't care about how big it is. I want the house next to a Sayyid Bahr al-Uloom because I want to be the neighbor of a alim. Now this comes out from Sheikh al-Tawsi. I want to be the neighbor of a alim. And that tells you the importance of ulama understanding each other's value and coming together in unity to serve the purpose of the Ahl al-Bayt. Al-Muhabbat al-Hilli. Al-Muhabbat al-Hilli, again born in, uh, he died actually in seven, uh, 676 after the Hijrah. So we're talking about a scholar, a faqih, who lived approximately uh, 800 years ago. Now, the fact, now, he, he's given the title of Muhattiq. And I think it's important for us to reflect on this. Muhattiq means, and there's really no word in the English language that does justice to the, the weight of this title. Muhattiq literally means a researcher. But what it means is that Al-Muhattiq Al-Hilli, who, whose specialty is Islamic jurisprudence, Islamic law. When we say if you don't mention who you're referring to, it is assumed that you are referring to Al-Muhattiq Al-Hilli. He's given the title of Muhattiq, which means he was the type of person who used to deeply research topics and subjects. He will not leave a single stone unturned. He will get into the most nuanced discussions about jurisprudential matters and this is important my dear brothers and sisters that you know even if you look at his most valuable book in fiqh which is shara'u islam which i had the privilege of studying samah to say also had the privilege of studying this book is is one of the most comprehensive books on islamic law it has about twelve thousand rulings and this book after he wrote it, essentially was the standard text on Islamic law in the Islamic sem seminaries for over 750 years. It, this, this doesn't happen by accident. This is someone who is a scholar of the highest caliber. When you read Shara'i al-Islam, you find that Al-Muhaqqiq al-Hilli, with his brilliant legal mind, you see, sometimes he doesn't give a fatwa. He doesn't give an opinion. He says, for example, Fihi taraddud, But I'm not sure. Al-Abhar, it seems that the most correct position is such and such. This is a very important lesson for us. This is not someone who didn't do their homework. This is someone who studied the ahadith, studied the, the, the content of the traditions, the chains of transmission, and yet... You see that there's hesitation when it comes to issuing a clear-cut ruling. Why is this? This goes back to a person's fear of God. That they have, they feel the weight of 
the responsibility that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold them accountable if they issue a religious verdict without, without any definite concrete evidence. And this reminds us of a tradition of Imam Sadiq where he says that you, should, that you should run away, you should flee from issuing a religious verdict in the same way that you flee from a lion. This speaks to the, the piety of Al-Muhabbah. So his, his book, Shara'ir, as is was and continues to be a standard text in the Islamic seminaries. And, you know, he comes from Hilla, you know, Al-Muhabbah Al-Hilli. And Hilla is, of course, in, in modern-day Iraq. It was one of the most important centers of learning in the Shia world. It was a city that had hundreds and hundreds of mujtahids. At, at certain times in his life, Al-Muhaqqiq Al-Hilli had over 400 students. And brothers and sisters, these are not average students. The students of Muhaqqiq Al-Hilli would be individuals that we would consider to be maraj' by today's standards. You know, so we when we look at the, the, contribution, the contributions of Muhaqqiq al-Hilli, even the way that the, the legal manuals of our maraja are organized for, 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 for centuries, for decades, they would follow the categorization of al-Muhaqqiq al-Hilli. So he really laid the foundation for future scholars to write their own uh, legal manuals. Uh, the next personality... Uh has also had tremendous influence on the modern-day Shia who are known as the Usulis. Al-Wahid al-Bihbahani, Muhammad Baqir bin Akmal al-Isfahani, also known as Al-Wahid al-Bihbahani, um, who was born in Iran uh, and later on migrated to the holy city of Karbala. Uh, was an Usuli scholar. Now, the difference between Usulis and Akhbaris needs an, a discussion of its own, a lecture of its own, or many lectures, actually. And many uh, books have actually been written, some by uh, Western academics as well, to speak to us of the difference between the Akhbaris and the Usulis. And how is it that the Shi'i community, for the most part, was all Akhbaris? <laughs> and then we went through a transformation and uh, the majority of the Shia, the vast majority of the Shia, I would say today, are actually Usulis. Now, maybe on another episode, uh, I and the Sheikh will tell you how is it that some scholars today are Usuli by title. I mean, they call themselves Usuli, but not so much by practice, which still makes them uh, half Akhbari, half Usuli. And some of them are fully usuli, and, and the difference between that. And, and how is it that that makes a huge difference in their fatwa? You know, some people, and this is something very interesting, some people will tell you why is it that scholars have uh, such an, a difference of opinion amongst themselves, so many differences, uh, this is disuniting us, this doesn't serve our unity. And they think that those scholars... Uh, uh, don't want to agree with one another. And there is no such a thing. Obviously, if they could, they would. 
but when it comes to how they perceive where they stand in this whole formula formula whether they they lean towards more the rational uh, type of 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 extracting islamic laws from the from its sources or do they lean towards more of a hadithi type of extraction of laws that is a discussion like i said of its own that we will discuss later which makes a difference a vast huge difference actually among scholars and their fatwa but what happened was during the reign of the Safawis, which was a Shi'i establishment state, a Shi'i government, for the very first time the Shi'a now had, uh, you know, uh, uh, the ability to practice freely, to, to, to speak freely, to print their books and so on and so forth. And within this period, the Ikhbaris actually took off. So any hadith, were, was attributed to the imams they said this is a hadith this is a must and people were fabricating hadith they were actually fabricating entire books and attributing them to the imams in fact we believe and some of the scholars have researched this that the enemies of ahlul bayt the enemies of ahlul bayt were were writing books and fabricating hadiths and placing them within the shi'i school of thought and they were looked at hadiths. Muhaqqaq al-Bihbahani or al-Wahid al-Bihbahani, he realized the dangers of this, attributing something to the Ahl al-Bayt. And until today, the Shaykh will tell you, people will sit on the minbar and they'll say, Imam al-Baqir said, Imam al-Sadiq said, Imam al-Rada did this, Imam al-Jawad did this. And this hadith is in some random book. We don't know whether this is a valid book, an invalid book. When was this? book even uh, when 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 was it even revealed so-called discovered um, you know the book is, is said to be authored for example by Imam al-Rida but it was found 300 years ago hypothetically how authentic could that source be so instead of saying Imam al-Sadiq said Imam al-Baqir said we have to say this book attributes this hadith to Imam al-Baqir that's the least we can do in order to uh, complete that the 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 transmission and an uh, uh, transmitting those hadiths in an accurate manner. Now, Al Wahid Al Bihbahani came and he stood firmly against the Akhbaris. The Akhbaris didn't use the Quran as a primary source, and Al Wahid Al Bihbahani said, first comes the Quran, second hadith, but not any hadith, a hadith that goes through. A valid and vigorous investigation. Once it's proven, it's from Imam al-Baqir, from Imam al-Sadiq. Yes, we'll put that on our eyes. We'll we'll take that as a hadith. But before that, we cannot call that a hadith. And he brought the influence of aql back to the school of Ahl al-Bayt. Therefore, uh, the school of Ahl al-Bayt is an alive and vibrant school. He gave the position of ijtihad back to the school of Ahl al-Bayt where scholars came back to do ijtihad, to investigate and to come up with new fatwas and new theories and to keep the school of thought alive. And once he entered Karbala, by the way, yeah, this, this is going to be my story of Al-Wahid al-Bahbani. When he entered Karbala, they said, don't do wudu from the same 
little pond uh, or, or what they call the, the uh, you know, they have the little, uh, what's it called, Shekhna in English? The, the place of wudu they have in the middle of the, uh, the fountain. Yeah, a little fountain. It's not just a fountain. They have a little, uh, it's a, like a little pool, very small one, where people go and do wudu there. It's usually in the older uh, hauzat. Don't go and do wudu from there because this Wahid al-Bihbahani is najis. Why is he najis? Because he denies the hadith of the Ahlul Bayt. Scholars did this. Ikhbari scholars, they called him kafir and they called him najis. Not understanding what the point he was trying to make was, I have nothing against the hadith of the Ahlul Bayt. Never. But if a hadith is attributed to the Ahlul Bayt and the Ahlul Bayt haven't said it, you're doing a disservice to the Ahlul Bayt. You're not doing a service to Amir al Mu'mineen by attributing something to him that he had not said. So, this was the transformation he did by the end of his life in the holy city of Karbala, brothers and sisters. He gathered all his students, the most brilliant and smart students he had. He said, We have come this far. If I die and you stay in Karbala, this movement is going to stop. Everything is going to end here. But I'm going to send every one of you before I die to a major city. One was sent to Khurasan, one was sent to Najaf, one was sent to Asfahan, one was sent to Qom, one was sent to Ray, and the most important cities of the Muslim world, even Mecca and Medina. And he stationed his scholars there to continue the journey of transforming the Shi'i Madhab from being an Ikhbari school of thought to an Usuli school of thought. I encourage every one of you brothers and sisters to look into this topic, the difference between the Akhbaris and the Usulis. Now, who is Allam al-Hilmi? Now, by the way, Allama, you know, it, it's, it's a word that is similar to Alim. Alim means a scholar, but Allama is Sirah Mubalagha. It is, it is someone who is a prolific scholar, whose knowledge is so vast that they're like an ocean of knowledge. Allam al-Hilmi, of course, his, his name was uh, Hasid ibn Yusuf ibn al-Mutahab, you know, and in his biography, it's mentioned that he came into this world. He was born on the 19th of Ramadan. Of course, he's from Hilla. And he started his Islamic education at a very, very young age. You know, you know. unfortunately, when I meet some youngsters, many of them, they spend seven, eight hours a day playing video games. And sometimes I wonder, you know, and many of them are very sharp. They're very intelligent. They have... They have all the resources, the brilliance. And I think to myself, how many Alam al-Hillis have we missed because of all the time, all the video games that we spend hours playing on? In any case, Alam al-Hilli, at a very young age, at the age of five, he started to study, thirst for knowledge. In fact, you know, in his biography, you, you find that those who knew him, even when he was young, they mentioned that he was a genius. You know, Alam al-Hilli is not a normal person. His, his intelligence was off the charts. And there's actually a funny story about his, his childhood. I believe he was about five or six years old. And Alam al-Hilli was actually quite hyper. You know, sometimes you have, little, especially little, imagine a little boy and Iraqi, right? And born in Hilla. You can imagine the, the energy and the potential, for, the potential for destruction. 
So he was a very active, very energetic little boy, and his father was also a scholar. Alam al-Hilli, again, very energetic, very active. It seems that one day he, he did something that, that upset his father. You know, five, six-year-old, they break this and they break that. So his father wanted to capture him, to discipline him. Alam al-Hilli had maybe the entire Quran memorized or a good portion of it memorized. He was so brilliant that when he saw his father trying to chase him and capture him and discipline him, <clears throat> He would recite the verses of sajda. So when his father hears them, he has to go down into sujood and the five-year-old Alam al-Hilli would escape. This is the type of person that was. Now, he was very fortunate that you know he, he, he was born into a scholarly family and his uncle was al-Muhaqqiq al-Hilli, who I spoke about earlier. So his maternal That's uncle... Sorry was So he studied with his father for a period of time. He studied with, uh, with his uncle. And he became, because of his commitment to the pursuit of knowledge, he became a mujtahid before he, be, he was balid. Brothers and sisters, do you know what this means? Let's say that maximum he reached, he reached the age of bulugh at 15. He never did taqlid. He never followed anyone because he was qualified to have his own opinions even even before he became balid. Now, when his when his uncle, when his maternal uncle, Al-Muhaqq Al-Hilli, passed away, and of course his, his uncle was the merja of the time, the scholars, everyone would turn to him for his religious verdicts. When Al-Muhaqq Al-Hilli passed away, the Shia community, the scholars, they were wondering who's going to fill the massive shoes of Muhaqqiq al-Hilli. And in Hilla, again, Hilla was the, the, the center of learning at the time. It was a place where many, many Muchtaids lived. They unanimously, the scholars the community unanimously turned to the 28-year-old Alam al-Hilli who became the Narja of the Shias at the age of 28. Now, Alam al-Hilli was, was so prominent he was so well known that when he wrote his book, Minhajul Karama, it attracted the attention of Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah. Can, can you imagine? Someone like Ibn Taymiyyah writes a book, Minhajul Sunnah, as a reply to the book of Alam al-Hilli. So you see that even, in, even among Sunni scholars, he was held in high regard. He was seen as, as an authority. In Iran, you know today Iran, Iran is a, is a predominantly Shia country. Credit goes to this man. The story is that there was uh, the Sultan of Iran at the time, Sultan Muhammad Khudabanda. He he had a, he had his wife, and he was he had he was deeply in love with his wife. But of course, in any marriage, you're going to have some arguments and conflicts. I don't know what his wife did, but he he got very upset with his wife, and he pulled out the triple talaq on her. He did the triple divorce. I guess it was in a fit of anger. In any no, case, they say they say she broke she broke his argila, his uh, hookah pipe. Some stories say that. Allahu alam. So, so this is this is valid valid rage, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, in any case, he he does a triple divorce. Now, of course, after he he divorces her, he regrets he regrets it because you know he was in love with her. So he consulted with Sunni jurists. 
and he explained to them what he had done and they said to him that you know that the marriage is dissolved the only way that she can legally return to you is that if she marries another man and he passes away or he divorces her so the, the marriage is finished so he was deeply distraught and he asked he inquired is there another madhab is there another sect within islam that has a scholar who can help me so they said that yes the the the, the shia the, the followers of ahlul bayt they don't believe in this triple talaq in in one sitting so he summons al-allam al-hilli he meets with al-allam al-hilli and after hearing the story he says that you're a talaq is not valid it uh, it is basically you know the conditions and your marriage is uh, intact now the sultan was so impressed by the the piety by the wisdom of allah al-hilli also by the fact that he was indifferent to power and his wealth you know many unfortunately there are some scholars who bow their heads when they're in their presence of royalty you know they 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 try to uh, they try to get close. You know they're very they're desirous of you know gaining proximity to rulers and to emperors. Allah al-Hilli was in his own world. He was in Sultan recognized. So he proposed to Allah al-Hilli. So he ends up converting. He becomes a follower of Ahlul Bayt. He becomes Shia, and he loved Allah al-Hilli so much that he said, "I want you to be with me. I want you to accompany me." When I travel, Allah al Hilli says that I have I have I have books that I need to write. I have students. The Sultan says, bring them with you. So Allah al Hilli used to travel with the Sultan, and he used to write while he was traveling. You know, he wasn't just dining and enjoying with. The, he was doing his own thing. So he his students, the students of Allah al Hilli, loved him and they benefited him from so much. That even his students used to roll as he used to travel with the Sultan. And Allah al Hilli wrote a more than 500 books. Many of them were written as he was traveling. You know, some of us forget about writing books. We don't even read. Forget about reading when we travel. We don't read when we have an entire weekend to ourselves. We have to revive this culture, this love for knowledge. That even Allah al Hilli, as he's traveling, He's writing and he's teaching. This is what it means to be a follower of Ahlul Bayt. You can't say that I love Imam al-Baqir and I love Imam al-Sadr and you've never opened up al-Kafi and if you've never opened up a tafsir of the Quran. This is a tradition. The followers of Ahlul Bayt, we come from a tradition that is rooted in knowledge. The Imams that we revere are al-Rasikhuna fil-Ilm. How we love them and revere them if we're ignorant, if we're illiterate, if we're Islamically illiterate. Illiterate, illiterate. So I encourage all of you, just as Samah the Sayyid mentioned, that you know, at least once a month, once every couple of months, learn about one of these these beacons of light in our uh, scholarly tradition. Allah al Hilli. There's so much that has been published about him. I encourage you to uh, to read up on his life. Sayyid al Khoi and the transformation that he created in the Hawza today, and every. Bahthul Kharaj, and again, the Sheikh will explain to you what Bahthul Kharaj is. So you have two terminologies now, Ijtihad and Bahthul Kharaj. In every Bahthul Kharaj, it revolves around the legacy of Sayyid Al-Muhaqqiq, Al-Allama, Ayatullah Al-Khawi, Radwanallahi Alayhi. 
his students, amongst his students as a Sayyid al-Sistani, amongst his students as, for example, a Sheikh al-Wahid al-Khurasani, amongst his students as, for example, Mirza Jawad Tabrizi, amongst his students um, are all the contemporary maraja. I don't want to mention one and, and forget the other. Um, but he transformed the Hawza in several ways. One of them was he came back and he re-established firmly Al-Murrajan, the chain of narrators. He studied it and he examined every single one of them, telling other scholars that come after him whether those individuals are valid, invalid. They're non-personalities, they're fictitious personalities, and that is a great endeavor in itself. Other was the constant Islamic legal theory discussion of usul al-fiqh that he had, <clears throat> where he came and he abolished many of the theories that we thought were embedded within the school of thought of the Shi'i school of thought and the Shi'i seminary. They were inseparable from our ideas, ideology. And I said, he came and said, such things don't exist. Let's start from zero. Let's build on them and see whether, for example, the popular opinion, do we have to follow the popular opinion or not? And he came to the conclusion that popular opinion means nothing to me. I'm a scholar of my own. I'll make my own research and I'll give my opinion. Popular opinion is the popular opinion. And he actually changed the popular opinion today. So when he came and he gave new fatwas, popular opinion of scholars now have changed because they are mostly his students. And many other theories and, and established ideas that a Sayyid left. Amongst the issues that really makes me sad, uh, that miss that is missing from the legacy of a Sayyid al-Khawi. Now he was a usuli. He was a man that used Islamic legal theory to the teeth. I mean, he established new ideas. He was obviously the student of al-Isfahani, so... A, a, a great mind, a philosopher, uh, somebody who was able to use reason to his advantage. He was able to use aql and intellect to give glory. And I, tr I truly mean this, give glory to the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt. As Sayyid al-Khoi, and, and this is the story that I'll share, As Sayyid al-Khoi decided that he's going to teach tafsir. And he began to teach tafsir. And he taught this tafsir and he began not with tafsir. And this is what I, I love about this personality. He began with what's called ulum al-tafsir or ulum al-Quran. The prerequisites before we engage with the Quran. And that part of the small time in which he taught those classes became the legacy that, for example, a man like a sheikh Hadi Ma'rifah calls a Sayyid al-Khoi his student and continues this journey after a Sayyid al-Khoi to write one of the greatest encyclopedias, not about tafsir, but about the sciences of understanding and the prerequisites and the requirements to be a mufassir, to understand the Qur'an, to do the tafsir of the Qur'an. So a Sayyid al-Khoi began to do tafsir and he spoke of the prerequisites. Obviously this book has been translated into English by Abdul Aziz Sachadina and printed by Oxford Press, I believe, um, and it's, it's available online. Now, what really is unfortunate is that they say some people went to Sayyid al-Khoi 
and they said to him, you are a, 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 a you are the grand merger of your time, you should be teaching fiqh and usul and not tafsir, and they basically pressured the Sayyid to stop the teaching of tafsir al-Quran, tafsir which is the most important aspect of a Shi'i scholar's life. But a Sayyid came and Sayyid al-Khu'i came and he gave that boost to the Hawza to begin that movement of tafsir. And obviously then it was continued by other individuals. Zainuddin al-Amili, which means that he hails from from Jabal Amin, title of a Thani, the second martyr. And why is he called the second martyr? Because he wrote a commentary on a uh, an Islamic law book that was written by a scholar that lived about a hundred years earlier, who was martyred, who who, who uh, ended with faced the same fate. And he's known as Shahid and Owen, and I'll speak about that in a, in a little bit. Now, Shahid Thani is actually, you know, if you look at his lineage, he is a he is a descendant of Al Alam Al Hilli. Now, what makes a Shahid Thani so unique, uh, so unique is that he is one of the most well-traveled ulama in our history. If you look at his life, he he traveled to Egypt, to Syria, to Hejaz, to Jerusalem, to Iraq, to Istanbul. And this shows you, he he, he literally lived the hadith of the Prophet, or the Prophet says, you know, al-ilma walaw You know, seek knowledge even if you have to go to China. A Shahid Thani was willing to travel far and wide and endure great hardship and endure poverty for the sake of benefiting from the preeminent scholars of his time. And a Shahid Thani was also a very open-minded person. He was not a sectarian person. He used to study under even Sunni ulama. In fact, if you look at the list of his teachers, about 12 of his teachers are Sunni scholars. When he was in Egypt, he studied under scholars who were experts in Bukhari and Muslim. So he received ijazas from also from Sunni scholars. So this shows you how open-minded he was. Now, it's not only knowledge, brothers and sisters. You know, we revere our ulama not just because they have knowledge but because they have the combination of knowledge and piety, ilm and taqwa, because knowledge alone doesn't have any value. It's, it's actually a liability if it's not coupled with taqwa, because if, if knowledge is sufficient, then Iblis should be the most spiritually elevated. Iblis has a lot of knowledge, but it's the combination of knowledge and taqwa. Now, the students of, uh, of a shaheed with Thani, you know, they note that, you know, Shahid Thani was, was not just a faqih, he was not just a jurist, he was an accomplished philosopher, medicine, astronomy, they, you know, there was this love of knowledge. They had this intellectual curiosity. And as Shahid Thani, his students note that he was so pious and he never wanted to be a burden on the communities that he was serving, so much so that he would teach during the day and at night. He used to carry wood, he used to deliver lumber, he used to de deliver wood to families. He worked at night to support himself. He never wanted to rely on public funds, he never wanted to be a burden on anyone. 
when he was in Baalbek, which is in modern-day uh, Lebanon, he taught fiqh, and not only did he teach Ja'fari jurisprudence, he taught, he was an expert in all of the madahib. So he taught Ja'fari fiqh, he taught Hanbali fiqh, Maliki fiqh, Shafi'i. So even Sunnis would flock to Shahid al-Thani to learn their own fiqh. You know, and this reminds me of the, the tradition, you know, uh, the most knowledgeable of people is the one who is knowledgeable of their difference. And this is a quality that a Shahid al-Thani had. Now, what's interesting about a Shahid al-Thani is that when he was in Syria, he was in Dimashq, there, there was a, a seminary in Dimashq, a Sunni religious institution. He had, my batteries uh, getting low. He had applied to teach at this Sunni institution. Now, because he was a Shia scholar, they were reluctant. And they basically asked him to evidence that he's qualified to teach. So what did he do? He wrote a book called Munyatul Murid Fi Adab Al-Mufid Wal Mustafid. He wrote a book which Alhamdulillah has been translated. It's called yeah. The Desire of the Aspirant. I encourage all yeah. of your brothers and sisters to read this book. It teaches you about the etiquette, the etiquette yeah. of acquiring knowledge, how you should behave, how you should interact with your teacher. What, are, what, what should, be, should be the intention behind your pursuit of knowledge? So he submitted this book as evidence of his qualifications and they accepted him. You know, can you imagine, you know, you and I, we get, we're too lazy to even fill out an application. He wrote a book just to show that he's qualified to teach at a Sunni institution. This is, this is love for knowledge, brothers and sisters. And, you know, because he was living in a time where Shias were, were being persecuted, the, the, the Sultan of the time was monitoring his activities. He was sent to go perform the pilgrimage to Mecca. And, you know, he was actually imprisoned in Mecca for, for 40 days. And when he returned from Mecca on his way back, he was arrested by the authorities. He was beheaded by the sea. He was decapitated. And his body was left unburied for three days. And his body was thrown into the sea. Allah, can you imagine the, the vitriol towards Shias? This was his fate. That there is no grave, there is no shrine for Shahid Uthani because they completely decimated his body. They, they beheaded him and they threw his body in the sea. This is why he's called a Shahid Uthani. And he's called a Shahid Uthani, the second martyr, because he wrote the most important commentary of Al Lum'a Dimashqiyya, which was written by another scholar from Jabal Amil, a Shahid Al Awwal, about 100 years ago. He wrote the commentary. So that, the the author of Al-Lum'a was also executed. And the one who wrote the commentary of Al-Lum'a, Al-Rawd Al-Bahiyya, Fi Sharh Al-Lum'a Al-Dimashqiyya, which is also an Islamic law book, he also uh, faced the same fate. Our ulama, they endured poverty. They endured persecution. And many of them were executed. And they were executed in the most gruesome of ways. So you and I can receive the amana, which is the, the uloom of Ahlul Bayt. And we dishonor their blood when we don't take our religion seriously. We dishonor their sacrifice when 
we don't even know the basics of our religious tradition. So if there's one thing that I want you to walk away with today, is that we need to take our deen more seriously. Now, I know everybody's busy. We have a lot of obligations and commitments. But I think every single one of us can commit ourselves to reading for a half an hour a day. Is that too much? They say the average person today spends two hours on social media. I'm not telling you to deactivate your social media. I'm saying just give a fourth of that time for Imam al-Sadr. Give a fourth of that time for Rasulullah and the Ahlul Bayt. So you can also, at the very least, you can be a functionally literate Muslim. So a mujtahid, now the word ijtihad, linguistically it means to struggle, right? It, come, it comes from the, the same root as the word jihad, which means to acquiring knowledge takes effort. You know, even though, you know, knowledge is at, at, the, at the tips of our fingers today, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of struggle to develop a deep understanding of uh, our religious tradition. So a mujtahid is a technical term which refers to someone who has mastered the Islamic sciences. And we're talking about mastering grammar, rhetoric, morphology, you know, uh, legal theory, you know, usul al-fiqh, mastering all of these sciences which are essentially instrumental sciences. You know, no one studies logic just for the sake of studying logic. You study logic because it, it is a tool that allows you to, to construct a syllogism. It's a tool that allows you to, under, to identify fallacies, for example. So a mujtahid is someone who has mastered the instrumental disciplines that allow them to derive Islamic laws from their primary sources. So that's what it means in a nutshell, inshallah, we can go into more details in future sessions. Now, Dars Kharij, now we see that high-ranking scholars, mujtahids typically, they have classes and it's known as Dars Kharij. Dars Kharij is basically where a scholar presents their legal views, their, their, their views in jurisprudence or their views in uh, legal theory, and for example, what they typically do is they might take, for example, Minhaj al-Salihin, the legal Islamic law book of Sayyid al-Khu'i, and they go mas'ala for mas'ala, and they basically either agree with Sayyid al-Khu'i and they give their, their juristic reasoning why they agree with him, and if they disagree, they'll also explain why they disagree, and in attendance, they're not just doing this with themselves, this, these lectures are presented to other scholars. So oftentimes, you know, if you look at the Dars Kharaj of Sayyid al-Khu'i, Sayyid al-Khu'i wasn't sitting with rookies. You know, under the member of Sayyid al-Khu'i, you have Sayyid Muhammad al-Sadr, Sayyid al-Sistani, you have all of these heavyweights who are going to challenge their, uh, that scholar and, and to, to see if they're able their, their fiqhi opinions or their usuli opinions. So just because someone is giving Dars Kharaj, it doesn't mean that they're a mujtahid. If they can withstand the scrutiny of other scholars and still, you know, hold on to their positions, that's when they can, that's when they demonstrate their, uh, the caliber of their knowledge. But uh, my aunt passed away three, four days ago, seven days ago, and my only maternal aunt, I want to make sure that we read a Fatiha for her. There was also a death in the Sheikh's family as well. So uh, why don't we take this opportunity? There is a lot of people, Sheikhna, that are suffering 
today as we speak from mental conditions, mental health conditions, they're suffering from poverty, they're suffering from anxiety, they're suffering from different diseases, many orphans, many people around the world and, and many people who could be watching have asked uh, for dua. 